On this episode of China Unscripted, China's ideological struggle, how the Chinese Communist Party wants to control your mind, and is the world ready to fight back? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Cleo Pascal from Chatham House and the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Thanks for joining us again, Cleo. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Was that the first question? <laughs> that wasn't a question. That was a statement. I am thanking you for being here with us. Do you accept my thanks? I do. And as a Canadian, I have to send it back to you double or triple. I think that's sort of the protocol. So... Merci, danke. That's the protocol. We're going to have to cut that because of racism. For that's all okay. The... We're going to be talking about Japan. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Well, so yeah, speaking of Japan, uh, I want to talk about the Quad. The Quad is sort of this uh, alliance between uh, India, Japan, Australia, the US, uh, aimed at countering China. I said all four, right? Or did I say Australia? You did say all four. I yeah. did say all four. So, so what's been happening with the Quad since uh, the Biden administration began? So uh, President Biden's first multilateral meeting was with the Quad. It was virtual, mm -hmm. but it was a leaders level meeting. So it was uh, Biden and Suga from Japan and Morrison from Australia and Modi from India. Um, and that was actually the first time that there was a leaders level meeting for the Quad. So he came in pretty strong on it. Secretary of Defense, Austin's first trips were to the region. And in fact, he made a, a point of going to India. So it, it seems to be that the Indo-Pacific writ large is a big focal point for the administration, hopefully, uh, and that the Quad itself is considered central to how they're going to engage in the region. And an interesting thing that came out of that Quad meeting was, because there's always a question, what is the Quad? Is it strictly defensive? Is it strategic? What is it? And they came out with um, three priority areas where they're going to work together. One is emerging technologies, another is climate change, and the third is vaccine diplomacy. And that vaccine diplomacy sh shows how complementary they are, because India produces a lot of vaccines. It has uh, a very good production capacity, and they're going to increase it with money from Japan and the U.S., and Australia is supposed to help with the logistics and distribution within uh, especially Oceania, but Southeast Asia region. Now I thought because they're good at hopping around. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, we'll cut that. <laughs> <laughs> but so, as I understood, the Quad existed to sort of counter China. How are those issues related to China? So remember, comprehensive national power, China's comprehensive national power stuff. So the way that China goes out isn't just military. It goes out in many, many different ways. And one area has, they've tried to gain traction in is vaccine diplomacy. So this is what it looks like to properly give countries in the region an alternative to China. It's not, it's not just military. It's we're going to help you in terms of health. We're going to help you in terms of economics. We're going to try to work with you in terms of education, you know, sort of across the board. So it's a, it's, as much part of comprehensive multinational defense uh, as China's push out is part of comprehensive national power projection. It was interesting right after this happened that there was a lot of stuff in Chinese state-run media about how vaccine diplomacy is bad, essentially. Well, it comes as uh, the Chinese Communist Party is putting a lot of pressure on the Philippines with uh, sending its fishing fleets into disputed waters. And an issue now is that the Philippines, in addition to all the other 
levers the Communist Party has over them has to worry about um, the coronavirus. They're getting hit pretty hard and most of their vaccines come from China. Yeah. Um, and they would prefer, quite frankly, their vaccines to come from elsewhere, but there's been a constraint on supply. And so that's why this sort of collaboration that we're seeing with the Quad could, could really change the perception of options that countries in the in the region have. Right now, they feel like for certain things, they only have China as an option. And China's been very focused about creating that perception and trying to corner the market in things like rare earths and things like that, so that China is the only option. But as other countries come together, if they do come together effectively, the countries in the region will say, okay, maybe there are other ways of going forward. So for the vaccine diplomacy, the the goal would be to have the vaccines available to other countries in the Indo-Pacific region? Uh, yes. I mean, because it's the quad, so they're sort of prioritizing the Indo-Pacific. But India itself has been doing a lot of vaccine diplomacy. Uh, and so, for example, for peculiar reasons, I was in the Bahamas a couple of weeks ago, and they just got their first vaccine shipment. And they were vaccines from India. They were free vaccines from India as part of India's outreach. So what they did in part was they dovetailed that into the quad agenda and are going to try to expand this production. But China, as you mentioned about China wanting to do vaccine diplomacy, China has been not happy about this. And there was a mysterious fire at the Serum Institute of India as they were trying to ramp up production. Uh, so, you know, whether or not that was deliberate sabotage, it is consistent with the kind of unrestricted warfare that you'd expect from China trying to sabotage this sort of engagement. Wow. If that was sabotage, like that's a pretty low blow. Like it's one thing to sabotage like a weapons manufacturer, but to sabotage a vaccine production plant, like, I mean, that's that's setting the bar very, very low. Well, uh, it is. And remember, Conference of National Power, right? If you can sabotage somebody else's vaccine plant, that means your vaccines have higher value and you have better engagement possibilities. So it goes to show kind of in the past uh, few months, there was the fire at the Sermon Institute of India. There was an attack on an iPhone parts manufacturing plant in Bengaluru, which it was a Taiwanese company, but it was manufacturing in India. And there was a, it was attacked by the, by the union which had links to the Communist Party. And, the, and it's, that attack seems to trace back to Chinese political warfare influences. And within hours of the attack, which caused a couple million dollars worth of damage, images of that attack were all over social media because the, China wants to give the impression that India is not a viable place to, to move your supply chains. And there was an attack on the Mumbai electrical grid not that not that long before that, which was a cyber attack, which has also been linked to China. So when you look at this sort of things, like I'm, I'm not, we can't prove some of them, but they are consistent with the unrestricted warfare policies of the Chinese Communist Party in advancing Conference of National Power. You've got attack, you've got a fire, suspicious fire at a Serum Institute. You have the attack on the iPhone parts manufacturing plant. You have the attack on the grid. This is how the party works, right? The, these are all elements of pushing forward a strategic agenda out of Beijing. So we can't just look at what's happening on the islands. You need to look at what's happening with your economic infrastructure, your health infrastructure, your education infrastructure, because it's it has long-term plans of destabilizing all of those in other countries. 
So you think the greater focus on India in the Indo-Pacific by Western powers, particularly the United States, is sort of a way to uh, counter this kind of move by the Communist Party of China? The, I think by Beijing thinks it is. Because the thing about the Western economies is our stuff is expensive, right? So we can't actually compete with China in places like Africa for certain sorts of goods, higher-end goods, yeah, but sort of the stuff that would be sold at the village level, not really which is why India has done very well at selling pharmaceuticals, for example, into Africa. So if you bring India, the India's economic offer, which is lower cost, often much more robust, uh, can handle hot climates, you know, because it, 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 in India, it has a wide range of climates, including very hot and humid. Um, if you bring that into the toolkit of what an, a grouping, I wouldn't say alliance, but a grouping can offer, countries instead of China, then you've really expanded your reach. You've really expanded what you can offer. So in many ways, India is really key to countering the Chinese Communist Party. It is, it, so I, I think it is, and I think the Chinese think it is, which is why they're doing their best to try to uh, work through these sort of political warfare exercises, but also through social media, through the, through traditional media, to give the impression that India is unstable. So this narrative about, you know, uh, India being impossible to work with, this, you know, this crazy right-wing Hindu nationalist, you know, all that sort of stuff, that gets fed by very active social media campaigns run through, through China, but also Russia. Russia doesn't want to see the U.S. and India get closer together. You see it around, like, the, the defense sales and through the Pakistan lobby. So there are a lot of very established lobbies that are doing their best to create divisions, not just between, I'd say, India and the U.S., but between all the individual members of the Quad and internally within those countries. So, you know, to create divisions within the U.S., create divisions within India, create divisions within Japan, for example, armament or disarmament, create divisions within Australia. So that, that to me, that social media, um, warfare, which is amplified by AI, is really uh, corrosive and dangerous and can undermine these top-level visits if we don't keep an eye on it. Dialectical materialism. I feel like we have Josh Phillips back on. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, too, because it feels kind of like now if you look at the quad, you're like, oh, well, that actually makes a lot of sense that these countries would work together. But it wasn't such a sure thing. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it. it it died. <laughs> it died when China put pressure on Australia to pull out in 2007, right? And it came back um, very much in the last uh, U.S. administration. And it was it was indicative of that whole, uh, that kind of Matt Pottinger approach that we saw in that declassified uh, national security uh, estimate of how to deal with the region or analysis of how to deal with the region, which is to create partnerships and allies. And um, there was a very focused attempt to try to bring it together. But what, what really helped, unfortunately, uh, was the, the death of the murder of the Indian soldiers in Galwan by the, by the Chinese Communist Party, because the, or the PLA, they, India was reticent for ideological reasons, but also because there are a lot of people making a lot of money out of a lot of different arms lobbies. Uh, in and around India. And so they, they didn't 
want there to be more strategic focus on a U.S. India relationship that would affect Russian arms sales, that you know would affect French arms sales. You know, so there was a a, a reason why India was kind of out of the game. But when those twenty men were killed, the popular sentiment was so inflamed, and and especially because they're already mad about COVID, that it became politically impossible within India to be soft on China in any way. So that gave an opening for those within the Indian system who had always said, we are going to have a China problem to do things like ban the apps, ban some sorts of FDI, uh, roll up some of the Chinese spy rings and, and try to get more control over their internal security. And once that happened, then it became more clear that cooperation with the U.S. would be helpful which is why, you know, when they signed Becca, they suddenly got satellite imagery of what's happening on the border with China. That's, Becca was that agreement between uh, uh, India and the U.S., which allows them to share real-time imagery. So they're starting to see the benefits for their domestic security of being closer to the U.S. But it wasn't just India holding back the Quad coming together, right? No. I mean, in every country, every country has elements that are uh, co-opted uh, by China. China's very good at elite capture, at, or you know Russia in some cases. Or again, you know the French are kind of funny about this, but the French really don't really don't want uh, to be locked out. The French aren't in the quad. So, uh, but the bigger the biggest problem obviously is China. So that which is why it went down the first time because of Chinese influence in Australia. So again, it, it, this combined with Australia really standing up to. To China, uh, and with Abe being in power in, uh, and his and his co- initial conceptualization of the free and open Indo-Pacific dovetailed very well. He called it the security diamond, but it is basically the quad. So we had a moment in history where the we had the sort of leaders in place who would be willing to move very quickly when the opportunity opened up, and and a lot of things got signed very fast after COVID, a lot of defense logistics agreements between countries as well. The the situation on the ground has changed enormously in the last year in terms of who's working with who and why they're willing to work with who. I think what's interesting is two years ago, uh, you started spearheading a project to track perceptions in a whole bunch of different countries, including uh, some of these quad countries and perceptions, including as they relate to China. Uh, and that was started in 2019 when you had no idea what it was going to look like two years from then. What are some of the things that surprised you the most? So this was a, this is a Chatham House project. We just published it. Um, and, uh, there won't be a quiz cause it's like 50 pages long. <laughs> very really interesting by the way. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is long though. And it was supposed to be just a one year project but we we what what we did was we ran um round tables in six countries the US the UK France India Tonga and Japan uh and asked them their their strategic communities in those countries what they thought about the other five countries so what, how they thought their country would interact with the other five countries in the Indo-Pacific over the next 4 years uh, so it's sort of like kind of hopping tables in high school and, you know, asking the 
jocks what they think of the geeks and you know whatever but in the context of another high school is about to invade that high school and steal everything so what are you gonna do about it sounds like my high school (laughs) (laughs) where did you go to high school (laughs) Uh, so that so that was that's kind of the context for it and we and we did and we also uh somebody also went to china to ask them the same set of questions we were asking everybody else and the person who went to china um is, is from china speaks mandarin and has very good relationships with the think tank community there. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> so, uh, and we finished the field research. I flew out of Japan in March, 2020. And then, then the world changed, right? So everything had to be rewritten, but it was very useful to have that baseline, that pre-COVID baseline of what the strategic communities were thinking and then follow it over the next year as COVID changed the way especially people were looking at china what was the uh, what was the pre-covid baseline so the the fundamental pre-covid baseline was in all of the countries there was a division between the political and the economic community who wanted to figure out ways of engaging with china for money flow reasons and the security defense uh, and intelligence communities who were saying, we have a real problem with China. You know, we we shouldn't be doing this. But the political and economic voices had were louder. And they um, they were really shaping the debate. And one of the big arguments was we can't rock the economic boat. We need to engage with China for economic reasons. Then COVID happened and the economic boat started to sink. And suddenly the defense, intelligence, security community guys, people, men and women came, could had their opening to come forward and reshape the, the language and the decision making around China. So things like the Defense Production Act, which was instilled by uh, the last administration in the U.S., never would have been possible the year before. So all sorts of things like the BECA was signed, the Quad came back to life, uh, the Supply Chain Resilience Initiative was launched. Uh, Japan launched a program to help countries move out of China. All of these things that never would have happened before were possible. Um, so there, so we went from a situation where internally in those countries we had a lot of in, we had a lot of internal divisions, as I de- as I described. There was a lot of uncertainty around things like elections, Brexit, and that sort of stuff. And the internal divisions and the uncertainty combined to make countries do hedging. There was a lot of hedging. Over the course of the next year, there was less internal division. There was less uncertainty. And so there's come less hedging. And the division between those that want to adhere to the China grouping and those who want a different model going forward has become much more clear and much more wide. I, I think maybe you should uh, describe a bit about what hedging is, because I found this very interesting in the report. Oh, okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, so hedging is, I mean, it, it's a kind of technical term uh, for when you invest, um, which is, you know, you'll you'll invest in one thing, but you'll you'll kind of do side bets to make sure you don't lose too much. And basically, the hedging, the psychology, of the hedging was, we're going to make money off of China, but we want to continue to get security from the U.S. And suddenly, the realization of how that was a real problem, how if you try to get money from China and security from the U.S., you're going to end up with no security and potentially not very much money at all. 
because as China comes in and takes more control over your economic structures, it's it's very parasitic. It'll suck out your uh, production capacity, your intellectual property, your um, your talent, you know, whatever it can. So that hedging didn't has started to make a lot less sense. There's still countries that are very big on hedging, um, but it's it's getting harder and harder to do. Is there a specific example you can think of of a country that hedged and lost on both sides of that hedge? So France has been like le roi de hedge. They've been like very big on hedging. Um, they they like to move in that that middle zone uh, and. And in the roundtables, you know, <laughs> they would say say things like one of the guys said from the defense sector said, when we go into the region, our special uh, quality is we have less political and military conditionality than the U.S., which means they'll sell better weapons to worse people <laughs> than the U.S. <laughs> right? that, that's how they operate. Um, and they they were very concerned that as a division happened between uh, the U.S. and China, they would be pushed out of zones where they could uh, be involved economically. For the French in the Indo-Pacific, it's infrastructure, energy, and defense. And that just happened in Myanmar. So the French energy company had to pull out of Myanmar because it became politically unviable for them to be operating in a country which had become so horrific so quickly. So that's a concrete example of how, when, when, where that gray zone starts to disappear and it starts to become, yeah, that's evil, then certain countries have to pull out just because it's not, they can't justify it anymore domestically. So what you're saying is there's a potential downside to investing in corrupt authoritarian regimes? Apparently not according to the French, unless you get caught. So they got caught. Right? Well, then that's the trick is to just not get caught. Mm. Yeah, and and again, the French and the French are. I, I learned I learned a lot about the the French because they're very implicated in the Indo Pacific. They have territories in the Indian Ocean, territories in the Pacific Ocean. They have a lot of uh, military assets in the region, and they're very careful about keeping a low profile. And their goal is to be considered a local actor, to be considered part of the Indo-Pacific so that they can help shape rules and norms. And uh, they've done that by, in part by really down, trying to downplay their colonial history. So this is this thing about when you talk to countries about the different countries. So when we talk to the U France about the UK potentially coming back into the region, they were like, yeah, we don't really want that because the British will remind the region of the colonial period. And so then they'll suddenly remember that the French were, you know, not so great during the colonial period. So if we associate with the British instead of associating with the Japanese directly or the Indians directly, it's a, it's a perception downside for us. Mm. No, but go on. Is there any more things negative that you want to say about the French? Cause it's an open <laughs> platform for that. <laughs> yeah. oh. You, you know, I'm, I'm from Quebec, right? Like, I have to go home. <laughs> so yeah, but, but they don't like the Quebecois, right? So that's, it's... Yeah, okay, correct. Yeah, that's right. So I'll, uh, they don't like... Anyway, no, the, the, French, <laughs> the French are really smart about this. I don't know what to say. They're, they have a very advanced Indo-Pacific policy. They've been developing it for, for years. I mean, they, they've been working on space cooperation with the Indians since the 50s and 60s. Well, not very successfully, right? Pr 
pretty successfully, but also uh, because because of this conditionality thing. So they would they would share higher tech gear with the Indians than the Americans would, for example. And also, everybody knows the French are the French, so that so kind of the barrier, you know, they, they what's expected isn't isn't as high. But if you want me to kind of say another thing about the about the French, please. And again, this has to do with kind of these these triangular relationships. Um, there was a, uh, the Australians were, uh, looking to buy submarines, right. A while ago. And the Japanese were willing to sell them submarines, which was a, would have been a very big deal for Japan. It would have been their first major foreign arms sale. And it would have really consolidated a quad type relationship. Uh, and the French got in there and, um, managed to get that submarine deal, that $50 billion submarine deal. Uh, at which point, one of the, the French defense minister at the time went to Australia and said, "You know, now we are married for fifty years." You know, uh, to which some Australians were saying, "Yeah, we know what French marriages are like." You know, Jeez. <laughs> that's always the problem of these three-way relationships with the French. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So if they if they limit it to three, it could probably be handled. But anyway, so uh, because France and Australia are actually neighbors. Because New Caledonia shares a maritime border with Australia. So France is very active in the region. So there, there was sort of some degree of logic uh, to, to work with the French there. But that I'm bringing that sale up because that's still a bit of a sore point within the quad. The Japanese were still uncomfortable with the Australians not buying their subs. So technical things aside, financial things aside, that's why the report looked at perception, how people view each other, because um, the, that perception gap is where Chinese political warfare can get in and create the division. So making sure that countries understand how they're viewed by other countries so that those gaps aren't exploited by hostile third parties is very important. Well, it seems like the fundamental issue was uh, the gaps were exploited because different factions in all of these countries were willing to do business with an authoritarian regime because there was money in it. And in many cases, they thought the U.S. could just protect them. Yes. And and I, I think you, you've kind of put your finger on the, the thing that really needs to be sorted out domestically in all of these countries before we can move forward in a stable way together. Um, the, the amount of active online political warfare against uh, any country that could potentially be a threat in any way to the PRC is enormous. I mean, we're talking millions of people, billions in budget. Like this is not, and, and it's not just online. It's, I mean, when Fang Fang came into California via the student organizations, right? takes control of the political organization that's linked to a campus and then distorts the discussion within the countries. Fang Fang, the alleged spy. The, the, the alleged uh, spy, yeah. Chris, Christine. Um, the amount of effort that's going in to uh, hobble us even before we can get out of the gate is is enormous. And we've talked about this before, you know, that should be the job of the media, but the media isn't really in all of these countries. It has the same problem, you know, where 
money is coming in from the outside that can distort the coverage to, to a very large degree. So yeah, we need to clean up our own houses. Uh, and then we're in a better position for the good guys, so to speak, in each of the countries to be able to find each other and work together in a comprehensive way. And China knows it. That's why it's creating our problems or helping to create our problems domestically so that we're less able to do that. So you mentioned that uh, one of the concerns within the Quad is or was how a new U.S. administration would change things. How do the members of Quad view how the Biden administration is moving forward since they have seemed to emphasize the quad so it's a it's a real kind of reading of the tea leaf situation at the moment every single action is being heavily scrutinized so there have been some kind of interesting moves around taiwan like gives it like i get the impression that taiwan is uh they know they need to be good on taiwan so one of the great things that happened was uh, they opened up the palau taiwan travel bubble um, and the ambas- U.S. ambassador to Palau joined the president of Palau on a trip to Taiwan. So that was a really nice move. And, and by the way, those countries in Oceania, which are highly strategic, kind of first island chain, second island chain islands, the ones that are in free association with the U.S. have been getting vaccines through the U.S. And so the U.S. is, is reinforcing social interaction between those countries and the U.S., which is essential. So they, they, so the U.S. has handled that part of it very nicely. Unfortunately, there was this uh, fruit of navigation operation, which the U.S. ran through Indian waters, uh, uh, I think on the 6th, on April 6th. Um, and then the 7th fleet released a press release saying, uh, we are doing a freedom of navigation operation in Indian waters, and we object to their excessive maritime claims Hmm. like why like why why would you do that now i mean they've been they've been running those operations in the past but don't put out a press release right so now so what that's done in india is that's given an opening to all of those voices that said you can't trust the u.s to say look you can't trust the u.s you know so suddenly Stuff is coming out in the in the Indian media about oh well the, remember in 1971 the Seventh Fleet came up from the Bay of Bengal to threaten India when we were helping Bangladesh with uh, independence from Pakistan and it was the Soviets who came and shattered the Seventh Fleet and helped save us from American intervention and so it you know it it it's the control of the narrative that uh, that was very heavily affected by that press release. Not necessarily the operation, but by the press release. So how are they doing? I don't know. Like it's, we need to see. And so far it's all on paper, right? There haven't been any, it hasn't gone kinetic yet. And that's going to be the real test. It hasn't gone kinetic yet. You mean warfare? Yeah. So when we did this, uh, the, this report, uh, we, we, did, uh, we gave the same survey in all seven countries. And one of the questions on the survey was, do you think there will be kinetic, kinetic means uh, action, like a military action usually. Do you think there will be a kinetic event in the Indo-Pacific before 2024? Every single Chinese respondent said yes. Wow. Yeah. So they they differed on how serious it would be, whether it would be small events or big events. 
but they are psychologically prepared for, for a kinetic event in the Indo-Pacific. Now, the other thing that came out uh, the, where the China survey was an outlier from everybody else. The other thing that, that we asked was, do you think the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea will have legitimacy in 2024? None of the Chinese respondents said yes. Did the other respondents mostly say yes? The other respondents mostly said, of course, why are you asking the stupid question? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. And that's why we're in this situation. Well, okay, so then what did the other respondents say about the kinetic event by 2024? They, they were possible. Po mm -hmm. Possible to probable. Well, I'm curious. You've said that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is, is, is masterful at controlling the narrative. Is it possible the China survey was also uh, part of their plan. It, it's possible, and I and I had a lot. Of, we there was there was a lot of internal discussion about how to do the China survey. Um, I what I wasn't going to go to China to do it. I also didn't have the context. And the other thing that we um, wanted to do was as much as possible do the discussions in the language of the country and with people from the country only. So in Tonga, for example, the Tongan roundtable was held in Tongan language. And apart from kind of my little team, the only people in the room were Tongan. And so it became, it's very much a conversation among themselves. Um, and I, my impression from the Chinese survey results is that uh, you always have to, you know, distrust and verify, but my feeling is it's pretty reflective of the perception because they have nothing to gain from flagging up that they're willing to challenge the unconventional law of the sea and they're expecting a fight. Well, you mentioned in the report that this is one of the issues that has been sort of uniting the world, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has become more and more aggressive, particularly on the Indian border. Yeah, uh, it, it's. And, and that's another good point, because there, there was sometimes people think of propaganda as being about a positive reflection of the country. You want people to like you. Um, I'm not so sure that's actually what China wants. I think that, you know, there, used, there also used to be discussion within China about saying that the, the, their justification for the Chinese Communist Party's policies was aspiration among the population so you know you you would your life is going to suck but your kid's life your child's life is going to be better so you're you have this sort of aspirational justification for um for your authoritarianism but as the economy within china has had increasing problems and there are all sorts of other increasing problems i think the main internal motivator has shifted from aspiration to fear so that's where you get social credit system and you get all of these other kind of fear-based controls domestically of Chinese society. And I think that in terms of international cooperation, there's also been a bit of a shift where the Chinese Communist Party is does, doesn't need to be loved. They just want to be feared. Mm. Right. Mm. So, you know, they're perfectly happy to, you know, kill the chicken to scare the monkeys or whatever that expression is, um, if it's, which is what you saw in, in Anchorage. You know, when you saw it during the, the Alaska discussion. Mm, the U.S.-China meeting. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the discussion there was, is this, a, you know, is he, is, are the Chinese side talking to a Chinese domestic audience? Or I think they're, I think they're talking to ASEAN. They're talking to, like, they're talking to all of those other country, little countries, littler countries, and saying, if we can do this to the U.S. publicly, imagine what we can do to you. So how do you think that meeting is being perceived in the Indo-Pacific? I think that there's a, a pretty sophisticated analysis of China. The closer you live to China, <laughs> the more sophisticated your analysis is of China. It wasn't a great uh, first impression, but I think countries are largely waiting for action, waiting to see what's, gonna, what's going to happen. And, and it's, not, it's not just military. It's also economic and in terms of the vaccines and in, and in terms of tech cooperation. Um, so my, my assessment currently is people are, are waiting. They're waiting to see what's going to happen. If the U.S. shows strength, uh, the momentum that we saw developing during the report from kind of March 2020 to, to February 2021, is countries being willing to come together? Uh, and create alternative supply chains and uh, critical uh, infrastructure cleaning up. And, um, you know, but currently, India is the only country that blocked those Chinese apps, which is a good bellwether for, you know, how well you understand the Chinese security risk, especially online. So, I mean, you know, we'll see. I think, I think we're definitely in a, things are not great, and we'll see what happens situation. So are they waiting to are they waiting to see what China does or are they waiting to see what the U.S. does? I think they're waiting to see what the U.S. does. And and I think it also it's not restricted to the region. So um, in 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, China attacked India. And we'll see whether um, as that alternate grouping comes together, the China, Russia, Turkey, potentially Iran, North Korea groupings, Pakistan coordinates. If I, if I was a Chinese Communist Party strategist, I would want all of those partners to be starting as many fires as they could before I went in to Taiwan, for example. And it could, and it could be, I mean, one of the discussions that, that we had recently was if your China is heavily invested in, in Argentina, very heavily invested in Argentina. And what happens if it gives logistical support to the Argentinians to do an attack on the Falklands? You know, that takes from a strategic perspective, that takes the UK off the board for a while because they're going to have to deal with that crisis. So if you start enough of those things via proxies like Burma, like Myanmar, what's happening in Myanmar, then that leaves you a lot more maneuvering room. Uh, and if you combine it with cyber attacks or electronic warfare, things that are a lot harder to attribute at the same time, um, the, the West, so to speak, has a really serious challenge on how to counter it. So even if the Biden-Harris administration fully intended to support Taiwan in the event of any kind of uh, Chinese aggression, it might just become difficult because of all of these proxy wars or various attacks that come up that just we get sucked into the middle east again because of Iran. Oh, oh. oh. 
as we're t- pulling out troops from Afghanistan, maybe. Yeah. Well, and, and not just Iran, because, you know, Pakistan is a, is a very strong iron brother, they call it, of, of China. So you start to see increasing terrorist attacks, you know, Wahhabi terrorist attacks uh, all at the same time. You know, and and there are there is emplacement. You know what happens if the Maldives starts to experience much more um, Wahhabi-based terror. I mean, I'm just giving sort of a, an example, but you know, those smaller places are they're more difficult to handle because they haven't been gamed. You don't have as many pieces in place. The allies that would be necessary to counter it uh, might not be in play. Um, it it can it can get very bad very quickly with not, not a lot of cost to Beijing. So uh, yeah, so it's it's not great, and the, and the and the cyber component of it is kind of a wild card. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much do you think China can do cyber wise that that most people aren't aware of? At any anything that you're worried about, it can probably do. I mean, do, do you want to, you know, water filtration, electrical grid, shutting off of, uh, I mean, I don't know what apps you guys have on your phone. We chat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, this, and, and, and in fact, this is something that you, you guys talked to, uh, on another episode, which is very interesting about digital, China's digital currency, right? If they manage to launch their digital currency, um, you know, they can wipe out your bank account kind of immediately if that's what you're relying on. And they're going to try to bring that in, I would expect, along the Belt and Road in the same way that they they have countries signing up to Baidu navigation system along the Belt and Road. So any, any place it touches or one of its allies touch um, is, is, is vulnerable. And, and anything electronic is, is vulnerable. I mean, we, we have a problem. We really, really have a problem. That's why I sent all my texts through Carrier Pigeon. Oh, yeah. That's good. And they're delicious. They're so delivering uh, sort of a nice note and a meal at the same time. Yeah. I think I need Don't to process a that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so it seems like the real issue is just the, as we were talking about earlier, the internal division in all these countries with the people who are like, no, 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 we can do, we can do business with China. This will be great. Like I'm just imagining the the BlackRock report that will say, "Hey, invest in uh, China's digital UN. That's a great investment for Americans." Oh yeah, I mean that's that's par for the course, you know. And that's and that's another thing about you know how we can fight back. I mean, I know you've had people like Grant Newsom who was on who was talking about that also. You know, you, if we're going to be able to to fight back, we need to cut off the money supply. You know, there there is a, one of the one Indian strat. The Indians are are quite complex and interesting, but they're thinking on these topics. And one of the Indian strategists said, "What should happen is just that all of the Belt and Road Initiative countries should say, COVID has been really bad for our economies. We're not going to pay back the loans for 15 years. We'll pay it back after 15 years, but for 15 years, we're going to put a hold on payments because you released a virus that destroyed our economies. And if you just cut off that money flow for five years, 10 years, China has a, has a serious problem. It can do a lot of problems. It can create a lot of trouble on its way down if it collapse, starts to collapse. But the alternative is not 
any better at all. Like the trajectory that it's on is uh, terrifying, actually. So you're saying the two trajectories are either the Chinese Communist Party collapses, but causes trouble on the way down, or we allow the Chinese Communist Party to become the global superpower that has its controls in everything in our lives, including our money and our power and water grid and our electronics and and basically everything. So a lot of the second part has already happened. Oh, uh, good. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there, and there is a concerted attempt, uh, to destabilize the U S dollar as you, as you, as you know, as you discussed about the first one, the question, this is the, this is the, what is the alternative internally for China? What, what would it look like internally for China, you know, in terms of a, a collapse Collapse is not, um, it's a very, it's a deliberately vague term. And I'm, I'm not so sure that it's viable because, uh, there are only kind of two national level organizations within China. One is the Chinese Communist Party and the other is the military. So I would suspect if there was a very big event, like for example, if the Three Gorges Dam cracked and killed a bunch of people, um, then it's possible that what would happen is they would do a show trial of some of the political leadership, some of the party leadership, but the military would just take over. And and she has placed himself in both camps, for example. And the key people have placed themselves in both camps. So I don't know what the alternative would look like. Um, and and there's a lot of discussion about do you would you want China to break up or not, if that was even an option. Um, and the the Indians are some of them are openly talking about Tibet, you know, but going in to retake a chunk of Tibet um, because. You know, especially it doesn't help that that China is now talking about a, a major dam on the Brahmaputra, which would uh, give it control, uh, strategic, but also resource control over something that is very critical uh, to India. That's basically the water supply of most of uh, the region. Yeah. And if they, they're talking about a dam that's, I think, three times the size of the Three Gorges Dam in a seismic, seismically active area. It's not, I mean, it's kind of insane, but... They've done other things that are kind of insane, so who knows? Um, but it's not, it, it's, it's, I think the things that, that we are not comfortable with in terms of the Chinese Communist Party, which are elements of its comprehensive national power, can be countered systematically. Uh, so, for example, the money thing is a very big thing. And we can do it in part through things like, let's talk about where, the children of the Politburo send their kids and what penthouses they have and how much money they have hidden and, and say, if you attack us, you're going to lose all of your assets that are outside of China. As individuals, those decision makers will lose everything they have outside of China. Identify them, call them out, uh, and if the assets remain in play, say, we're going we're gonna to go after it. It's actually one of the things that the Indians did um, after Galwan, one of the things that they brought up was if we, if, if India declares China an enemy, they can seize all of those assets. Hmm. So there's a, there's, there, there are a range of mechanisms, uh, that people who are much smarter than I am know about and think about, um, that have started to come into play a little bit, uh, but could be brought into play a, a lot more so that there, it doesn't have to be 
you know, China d- descends into warring states or they take over the world. Uh, but there is some sort of more uh, viable option in between. Well, well, one thing I think that does sometimes get lost in this discussion is, is like, as you mentioned, it's either the West stands up to the Chinese Communist Party and uh, its power starts to collapse or the Communist Party takes over the world. I think because of internal corruption for a wide range of issues, the Communist Party will eventually collapse, regardless of what the West does or doesn't do. What it becomes is an issue of how much do we go down with it? So when it collapses, what do you think that looks like? It could be many things. It could be... uh, So the interesting thing about how the Communist Party runs China is that essentially like all of the government institutions that have functioned throughout China's history are still there. It's just like a parasite. The Communist Party has latched onto it. So many of the systems of governance still are there. If they could just be replaced by, you know, people who weren't Communist Party officials, uh, that could be a scenario where uh, China maintains a degree of stability and perhaps even economic stability uh, without some kind of, you know, cannibalistic China fractures into a million different pieces, different PLA generals vying for power. How ideological do you think the top 5% of China's leadership is? I imagine not very ideological. I think by this point, the the real, you know, die-in-the-wool Marxists have are either not there anymore or have seen how the system fails. This is partially why there's such a problem of, uh, what do you call it, elite flight in China where they're getting their money out of China because they know the system is not stable. It's not secure. They are trying to prevent themselves from going down with the ship. Yeah, I, th- I think Xi Jinping is maybe uh, outside of that. Like, I think Xi Jinping himself is actually a real Marxist. I, I'm not 100% sure. Because in his anti-corruption campaign, which is mainly him purging his political opponents, I imagine like like even if he was once upon a time like a you know real die in the wool, you know Maoist Marxist whatever, when you see the scope of corruption in the system, that's got to impact you in some way. But I think he thinks he can. I think he thinks he can save it. Essentially, I think that's part of know. the anti-corruption campaign. Is that um, you know, he wants to preserve the party system. Does and he want to preserve the party system or does he want to preserve his own grip on power? No, I think it's definitely he wants above all to still be in power. But I think he thinks the way to do that is essentially through uh, reforming the party. And I think on a personal level, he doesn't like the corruption. Right. Yeah. He's also tied himself to the party in a way that previous leaders since Mao hadn't done which is that Xi Jinping has consolidated so much power that he basically now is the Communist Party. So he either has to make the Communist Party work or he goes down like the captain of a sinking ship. So it's it's a, a very serious problem for him personally. But I mean, I guess to get back to the question of, you know, the top 5% of China's elite, how invested are they in, you know, ideologically? I agree, probably not very. Uh, but they also a lot of them have blood on their hands. So even if they, you know, don't care about communism, they may not want the Communist Party to fall because then 
you know, they're going to get Nuremberg. Yeah, there would need to be, what ha- needs to happen in China is a Nuremberg trial, a Nuremberg trial for communism. So, Cleo, what's your response to the last five minutes of our discussion? So, well, well, so th- so that is very much what what doing this project was like was trying to because we we carry around a lot of these geopolitical articles of faith, okay, which with the acronym is GAF because we're all making these GAFs, right? These geopolitical articles of faith, which are things that we believe, which inform our, which come from our perceptions that dictate our actions. So if you believe that they're not ideological, you'll act in one way. If you think they are ideological, you'll act in a different way. So it's very much uh, about trying to understand not only how the other person thinks, but understanding how you think about what the other person thinks and how that's affecting your behavior in order to understand whether that's going to be effective in terms of an outcome or not. So uh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think, I think that I, that ideology plays an incredibly important role in motivation in a lot of the decision-making in China. I think that they think that their system, whatever they, whatever you want to call their system uh, is superior. And part of the goal is to prove that their system is superior. It's why that's why you know things like the Olympics are kind of important for them and why they they want to win every single medal at the Olympics. Right? Like it's not it other countries don't necessarily behave like that. It's part of the ideology. So calling it, you know, whether you call it Marxist or Maoist or something else, I I think there is an ideology that is fairly pervasive uh, that can't be bribed or threatened or blackmailed away. It's a reality. And it's um, being spread. So we saw, kind of talked about this before, but, you know, Mao himself was very active in trying to spread that kind of ideology into the whole rest of the world uh, until the early mid-70s. And if you feel like China represents that that ideology that gives them a leverage over you um, in terms of actions. So we talk a lot about kind of how China expands its comprehensive national power through money and through threats and through coercion and through blackmail. But ideology is a really big one also. Um, and it, and whether they believe it or not, or whether I believe that they believe it or not, what is empirical is it is effective in a lot of places. The Maoists in India just killed over 20 Indian security forces. They believe those guys. And, and China will fund them. We'll find them way, find ways of getting them supplies, even if it's via Pakistan. So you talk about, you think that there's a really strong ideology among China's elite. Looking at the Soviet Union, which collapsed 30 years ago, uh, at the time, I would say in the five years leading up to the collapse, would you say that there, like looking back, was there a strong uh, Soviet, you know, Leninist ideology among those Soviet elite? So, so I think that this, this is kind of the difference. I think there is an ethno-nationalism component to the, to the Chinese Communist Party, which is um, civilizational in a way that you, wouldn't, that you didn't get out of the Soviets. Um, but, but which you, see, you saw echoes of in 30s Germany. 
you know, I think it, that it's sort of more that kind of a kind of fascistic. I mean, you've also had Kerry uh, uh, Grishanik on, and he he says that that, that this is a fascist regime, fascist totalitarian regime. That's why the kind of the words around the ideology are, can can be confusing, at least to me, because I don't really know when somebody says Maoist or Marxist, I don't really know what they think is the difference or what they say is the difference or versus totalitarian or authoritarian or um, fascistic. But in this particular context, uh, I, I think they feel justified in their system, the leadership that is specifically around this fascist component of it and the totalitarian component of it. I would say that if you throw the nationalism into the mix, because I think then you have also a lot more power in the, like, I would say that in the Chinese, like, population in general, there's way more of an ideological belief in that type of, like, nationalism than there is in Marxism, Leninism in general. Uh, but like, you know, China says we're Marxist, Leninist, which with China, China, like we have socialism with Chinese characteristics. I think most people don't actually like ideologically care about the socialism part. But the yeah, the Chinese like ethno, the Han ethno nationalism, um, how they tried to expand that to cover like the 56 happy ethnic minorities. And all that, that is a very powerful narrative that a lot of people in China um really believe in because also of a lot of the whole thing about, you know, the century of humiliation, uh, you know, now we're like stepping out into the world kind of that uh, really does drive a lot of national pride. So I think if you add the nationalism into the mix, when you talk about ideology, it's way more powerful. Also, when you add to that, the specific part of communist ideology that focuses on uh history being the history of struggle, different class struggle, and you add that to uh, that's this kind of nationalism we talk about, that is, I think, pretty pervasive in China. Even if um, uh, top officials may not believe in like the nuts and bolts of the system, the idea that there has to be this struggle, that there is no way that like uh, the sort of ethno state of China can peacefully coexist with other countries. It will be a situation where one dominates the other. That does drive a lot of the action. Right. I mean, that, that's a very Marxist idea, which is that the entire the entirety of human history can be viewed from the standpoint of class struggle and progress is only made through struggling against your enemies. You know, and I think we definitely do see that uh, in China outside of any other type of like, um, you know, Marxist uh, economic ideology, for example. I think also there's the the a part of the ideology of how the U.S. is the like it is essentially the enemy. Like the the imperialist U.S. is like the biggest thing that you know the Chinese China has to struggle against, right? But I think that also really in terms of internationally in like the global South and a lot of these other countries, there's a lot of like because there's like a lot of like the whole anti-imperialism, anti-American imperialism that really gives the Chinese Communist Party a huge like place to come in and be like, we are the anti-American imperialists, 
right? Anti-French also. Remember the, the, the <laughs> French, this is where the French come up again. Well, we're, we're all region, a little bit anti-French, I think. That, well, yeah, and 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 China will use those perceptions and narratives in order to to do exactly what you're talking about. Um, and then, of course, they show they show their hand when they say we're a big country and you're a small country, so be quiet when you when they're at ASEAN. Uh, but this discussion is really important because um, understanding what we're actually dealing with in Beijing uh, is the first step for figuring out how it can be handled. They're very smart and focused and well-funded um, and relatively stable in terms of, uh, you know, they don't have elections every two years or four years. So understanding what it is they they're trying to accomplish fundamentally. I mean, we you know, comprehensive national power is sort of the tool but what is it that they're trying to build with that tool um, is really important because that's how we can figure out where, where the cracks are, where the leverage could be, and also how they're engaging with those same elements within our societies in ways that are potentially extremely destabilizing for us. How would you succinctly describe what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to build? They're, I think they're trying to build a world uh, that is safe for Chinese hegemony. They're try, you know, trying to build a world where the rules and norms come out of Beijing, uh, where any major decision has to be referred back to Beijing. I and mean, it's the old Middle Kingdom uh, suzerainty type structure, right? The, the, the imperial power which doesn't necessarily have to have a, have colonies. I mean, we the West tends to have had a colonial structure, which is very different, where you put in your people in the government. Yeah, they don't need to, the, under the imperial model, you don't need to put your people in the government, but that government needs to pay attention to what you say and, and bring you gifts and say, you're so great, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's what I think, the, what the world they want to look like would be, um, but I, but I think that embedded in that, and this is this question of ideology, is that what that means is a very hierarchical authoritarian system where uh, the leadership is centralized and in complete control, and that decision making is is narrow. So it's not a, a hegemony that is based on anything except totalitarian control, uh, which is why understanding the ideology is really important because we know, we kind of know, we talk about Ch Chinese galactic hegemony as Rick Fisher talks about because now, now it's the moon and, and it's Mars as well. But that hegemony has a very specific structure and that structure is highly authoritarian and it has this ethno-nationalist component to it which justifies that authoritarianism. It's not good. I'm just imagining imagining Avatar, only if the bad guys were um, Chinese space forces, would have been very different. Wait, which Avatar? Um, like the blue, guys? the blue, the blue okay. ones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but, but what do you think? But what do you think? Because again, like this discussion about we have all of these these articles of faith that we just that we're we're making our analyses based on without actually questioning them in the first place. So what? What do you guys think a China hegemonic world would look like? If they accomplish their goal, what does the world look like? 
Well, you're talking about a, a, a hegemony by the Chinese Communist Party, right? That that's implicit. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I I think that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, like you pointed out, they want to have this uh, imperialism without colonies, and this idea of loyalty where China controls uh, manufacturing uh, and thereby controls the economy. Every other country is poorer than China, and therefore, to a degree, dependent or even enslaved to the whims of the Chinese Communist Party. And we're already seeing this happen in some African countries, for example. And, you know, uh, you know they, they want to see the communities in the Western developed world essentially torn apart, and so that the only source of stability is relying on the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, I don't have anything to add to what uh, you, Cleo, or you, Matt, said. That seems about right. I have something to add, which I think is also even more depressing, which is um, I think they'll end up also essentially exporting their uh, censorship, not through actually controlling the internet the way that they do in China with the firewall and stuff like that, but just through, you know, I think they're already kind of doing it, making companies afraid of crossing China or angering China in order to do business, uh, making Chinese people in other countries afraid of talking about the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, Chinese people in Australia, Chinese people in America, threatening their families, um, you know, threatening, you know, you're a Uyghur who's made it to Turkey. Maybe Turkey's going to send you back to China. Um, and I think that that's kind of already happening on a low Scale. Like it's not like widespread. Um, mostly they target people they think are troublemakers. Uh, but I think that like if the Chinese Communist Party, they become the global hegemon, then that will just be the way of life in most countries where you're so dependent on China economically. Um, you're so dependent on them, you know, in terms of like the political leaders are afraid to say something uh, like they're able to because China could sanction them. You, you are able to. They're kind of able to export that type of like censorship and authoritarian control through the, their spy networks, through like all this kind of stuff, and it'll just be very, like, not official. Like, it won't be. It won't be. It won't be implemented through governments. It'll be implemented through kind of like these societal mechanisms. And I, th I think one, you know, type of thing we might see is. You know, Facebook has tried to get into China for many years, and I think they've backed off a little bit recently, which is good because I can imagine a world where the Communist Party lets Facebook in, lets them kind of, you know, make money and, and establish their roots in China for a while, and then says, okay, now to continue to operate in China, you have to censor speech not only in China, but also all around the world, any speech that slanders China. And you can legally do this because Facebook, you are a private company uh, and therefore you have free speech uh, in the United States or in you know Canada and other free countries. And your right as a company is to control what's on your platform. And so that's, I mean, I think that's just a, a, a practical, uh, you know, idea of what we'd see. And we are seeing, you know, some level of, of censorship, let's call it against certain voices on 
Facebook and YouTube and other platforms, but it's not to the scale that it could be if wasn't a f- didn't come out that a Facebook fact checker had ties to some Chinese company. It kind uh, this sounds like, like an episode of wait, is that true? It was not really that. Like it's kind of also like they tried to say that like Facebook employed some Chinese people. Like they uh, did, yeah, kind of like these first first generation Chinese people who had previously worked for, uh, you know, Chinese companies that like Chinese tech companies that had participated in censorship in China. But like that's like you know several degrees of separation between saying that and being able to say, well, that proves that Facebook is implementing censorship techniques from China. I just want to say I'm comfortable working with uh, ethnically Chinese people. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. So I think Shelley, you kind of put your finger on one of the things that I'm particularly worried about, which is what what happens inside our heads, right? Like this this sort of uh, imperialism or however you want to put it doesn't stop in the physical world. The goal is really to control uh, control thought and. We saw it with, you know, the when the Australian, I think it was the embassy, uh, Chinese embassy in Australia, put out a list of things that Australia should or shouldn't do, right? Or what their government should or shouldn't do. And we're starting to see it kind of almost implemented, the self-censorship implemented. The Halifax Security Forum wanted to give an award this year to President Tsai of Taiwan. And the Canadian government said, we're going to pull all our funding or pull our funding to the Halifax Security Forum if you do it. Right. So that self-censorship um, is happening at right now at the national level. Um, but I'm but I am particularly concerned about heading into a world where, like in China, there are a lot of things you're not allowed to say or think, really. If they know that you're thinking it, you've got a problem. That's the national security law in Hong Kong. Right. Like it's and they can and the reach is global. I think this is this is one of the things that needs to be made explicit. This is not a battle for territory. This is a, a battle for ideology, for minds, for for what you believe in as a as an individual and as a nation. Like this is really, really fundamental. Uh, and we can't ignore it. We need to call it out. This is a, a whole different way of structuring human organ human interactions organizations not just economies not just borders not just an island in the south china sea no the, i think the goal of the chinese communist party is to get into your mind and help you determine what you're allowed to think and not allowed to think so this is a this is pretty serious and it's has to be countered we we can't you can't let it stand Oh my gosh, it's like the Chinese Communist Party is a mind virus. Well, it's it's really 1984, Orwell tried to warn us. Or 1938. Yeah, with the National Socialist Party, that seems... Yeah. Well, that's a a lovely topic. I I have another question, which is, in your two-year project to... Uh, get perceptions from all these different countries. There's one country that seems to be kind of outside the normal pattern, right? And that's Tonga. Okay, I know you. I knew you were heading towards Tonga, but I. But so, 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 so. Firstly, two questions. One is, what's Tonga? <laughs> what's Tonga? <laughs> and secondly, 
why did you choose Tonga? And I guess thirdly, what did you what did you find? So uh, we picked Tonga. Uh, Tonga is a country in the South Pacific, population of about 100,000 people, never been colonized. It was the center of a thalassocratic empire. Uh, well, not really like empire in terms of colonies, but it was culturally important around the region for a very long time. It still has a monarchy. It's the last remaining Polynesian kingdom. It has a military. They've served in Iraq and in Afghanistan. The royal family has relationships not just with the uh, royal families around the region, like the Maori king or the uh, major houses in Samoa, but also globally. So uh, when the last king of Tonga had his coronation in 2015, the current emperor and empress of Japan came to Tonga for the coronation. So it has a kind of an un, unusual reach in terms of foreign policy. And because they have essentially kind of a per, per, permanent foreign policy establishment, they've been dealing with foreign powers coming into the region since the initial colonial period. So the current king is a direct descendant from the king who negotiated the treaty with the Americans that when they came in and with the British when they came in. And they, they know how... Uh, geopolitics affects their region and how to balance powers. And they're very similar to a lot of other countries in the region that are quite small population-wise, but are highly strategically located. Uh, China has been very focused about gaining toeholds across the Oceania region. And I think in part because they looked at what Japan's weakness was, which was it didn't consolidate the islands before it attacked Pearl Harbor, and the Americans fought back with the help of Australians, New Zealanders, and other Pacific Islanders, island by island, to hem back in Japan. So China is in the process of setting up toeholds, economic and political, at least initially, in the islands across the Pacific, for an eventuality, I would suspect, of pushing the U.S. back to Hawaii. And this was something that was overtly said by one of the Chinese leaders said to one of the uh, American naval guys, you guys can take Hawaii East and we'll take Hawaii West. And this goes back to conceptualizations that, that Japan had. The Chinese military infrastructure does something very interesting, which is they study defeats. They study why the Soviet Union fell apart. They study why Japan lost and try to put themselves in a position where they're not going to get hit by those same vulnerabilities. And one of the key elements of that is control over at least key elements of Oceania, because as they try to break out of the first island chain and the second island chain, if you can attack the first island chain, not just from the front, but from the back, then you're in a much better position, which is also why seeing the U.S. outreach to Palau, for example, and incorporating the U.S.-Palau-Taiwan relationship into a strategy is so important because it counters that Chinese activity. So we wanted to go to Tonga, which is one of these countries that's kind of on this um, diplomatic front line, to hear from them what they think of the contestation between China and, and the others, and what they like about the Chinese engagement, what they don't like, what they like about engagement from Australia, New Zealand, US, and others, what they don't like, um, to figure out how everybody can understand each other's perceptions and work together more efficiently. So what did you find out? So what we found out was the increased interest from China has at least in the short term benefited Tonga because it gives them a better negotiating position 
when they're dealing with other countries like Australia and New Zealand. The problem is that the Australia and New Zealand outreach hasn't has had issues, uh, which is how you end up with countries like the Solomon Islands and Kiribati in 2019 switching from Taiwan to China because the, the Australia New Zealand element of it has some deficiencies. Um, so what they actually want is they want more direct American engagement politically, and they want more economic engagement from India because they think that the Indian economy and the Tongan economy have a lot of compatibility. This is again this kind of low cost engagement. They want better connectivity to India so that their students can go study at Indian universities, which are lower cost and just as good and more culturally compatible. And the same thing for healthcare. But the problems that they have with the India Tanya compatibility is currently now most of the flights go through Australia and New Zealand. So when we were there, there was an Indian who, who runs a university in India who is going to come to Tonga to have discussions with the Ministry of Education. But she couldn't get a New Zealand visa in time in order to catch the flight. So that barrier, that connectivity barrier around visas and around uh, flights is an impediment for creating that relationship. And also Australia and New Zealand, quite frankly, their business sector at least, don't want other outside economic elements coming in. Their strategic community hopefully understands that if India comes in, it reduces the Chinese influence in the economy and perhaps increases prosperity, stability, and security so that China becomes less of a factor. But if they look at it through very narrow lens, this could decrease Australian and New Zealand influence in the region, then they have no incentive for facilitating a Tonga-India growth and relationship or even a Tonga-US growth and relationship. So didn't Tonga take a China loan recently? It, it, well, it did. It wasn't quite that recent, but it did take a big China loan. And it's something that's brought up a lot in the context of sort of sovereignty. Um, and and the question came up at the roundtable. Somebody brought up, well, what do we do about this, you know, the China loan? And the, the guy from the Ministry of Revenue said, well, if you want to deal with the China loan, then start paying your taxes. And it turns out that one of the problems that Tonga has is it has a very inefficient domestic tax collection scheme. And the Ministry of Revenue wants to get an automated system uh, to aid in tax collection, in particular from the ethnically Chinese-owned or run shops in Tonga. But 90% of the retail sector is controlled by recently arrived ethnic Chinese, and they don't, they're not paying their taxes. So they need a better IT system to collect taxes from those shops. But the IT system that they're looking at is about $10 million, and they can't afford it. So from a security perspective, if you want to help Tonga deal with its China loan, what you need to do is help them get access to a low-cost IT tax collection system. So it's those sort of things that came out uh, when you actually go to the countries and talk to them about what their real problems are, that you can kind of figure out entry points that weren't expected that might facilitate a real shift in strategic alignment if you can action them effectively. They should import a system that everyone in Tonga fears by hiring the IRS. Yeah, well, I think that that would be fun, but I, hopefully they're not going to import the Chinese Communist Party system that everybody fears. No, that would be far worse than the IRS. And I, and I don't say that lightly. <laughs> Cleo, you talked or. you talked earlier about how, you know, the world is kind of waiting to see what the U.S. does uh, and uh, how if the U.S. projects strength or does something 
uh, kind of to counter China in in a strong way that would change things versus uh, the the trajectory that was going on before March of 2020. Uh, so how are some of the ways that the U.S. could show that strength? So there are, there are a lot of options. Uh, first is, as we talked about, going after the money, going after kind of Chinese money, making sure that you can't invest in China to the degree that you can uh, sanction more of the companies, but also help the allies defend themselves. So uh, work with the Japanese, for example, to create um, a more viable defense system in the Senkakus. And even if the Chinese are, if the Japanese are reluctant, encourage them to do it anyway. Uh, help the Taiwanese create a much more efficient domestic defense force uh, so that if, if there is an invasion, the cost would be a much higher one for the Chinese. Don't go after the Indians on freedom of navigation operation exercises and instead help them have the tools that they need in order to defend themselves. So it's not just about, we're entering, I think, potentially an era of partnership. So it's not just about what the U.S. can do on its own. The first thing it can do on its own is consolidate its domestic position through money and social media and all that sort of stuff. But if you're looking at comprehensive multinational defense to enable the allies to be in a position to put up a much better fight across the board, economically, militarily, um, narrative-wise, all that sort of stuff. So work, understand where the weaknesses are in our partners and allies' defenses and encourage them to shore. Um, so there's there's quite a lot that has been done and quite a lot more that could be done. And all of it has to be done. Well, I know um, President Biden has talked a lot about working with American allies to counter China. So hopefully this is what we will see uh, be a cornerstone of his administration. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks for joining us again, Cleo. It's always a pleasure having you on. Very good to very good to see you. If I could see you, but I can't. So good to hear you. You know, after talking to Cleo, it's just like what a horrible situation we are in now because of the business and political communities that have been pushing this engagement with China for decades. You know, one thing I wanted to ask her that I kind of forgot about was like whether. Because I think what the Chinese Communist Party is really trying to do now through their propaganda apparatus and all this stuff uh, is kind of push us back to like pre-COVID times where it's like, well, now, you know, we're a great economy. Our economy's, uh, you know, our economy's uh, recovering. We're doing better than any other economy on the planet. So, you know, time to invest here. And yep. I'm just wondering if they, they're going to get away with doing that. It's not about the economy. That's not the reason to invest or not invest in China. Well, I think that like it worked so well for them, right? It was working so well for so and, long. And then the coronavirus happened. Yeah. And now only some com companies that used to do business in China are still being stupid. Yeah, but it's kind of like they all are ready to get convinced again, I feel like. You know what I mean? I think yeah. there is a bit of that, but I think also like what Cleo was saying about how the Chinese Communist Party is becoming more and more aggressive, how they want other countries to fear them, is that yeah. they already have successfully stolen a lot of intellectual property. Uh, they've set things up so they are far less reliant on the West than they once were. I mean, I'm the, sure they would have liked to have continued it for a bit longer, 
but whether they really need the West in the same way. But I don't. Th- they they. But like, it's not a need necessarily, but it's a. It it would basically makes everything so much easier for them, right? right? They they don't have to worry about you know being accused of genocide. Yeah, the flip side of that is also we're more dependent on China. So, for example, you know you've got. You know, American manufacturers like Apple can kind of pull out and move to India, and they've started to do that. But you also have things like, you know, all of our solar panels, for example, are made in China because they stole American technology. Oh, and, so, and you like, know what's cool about that? Like the polysilicon that's made for solar panels? Mm-hmm. Guess what region of China that's produced it? Ooh, the happiest region of China? Yeah. Where all the sand and the concentration camps? Yeah. It's basically like they're being produced by these factories in Xinjiang where it's completely unclear whether the people working there are working there voluntarily. So this is what happens when you work with China on green energy and climate change. They steal your technology, the your companies lose out, they make the products with slave labor, and then Americans have to buy them. And they get subsidized by the U.S. taxpayers. You know, I saw Tang Biao, who is like a Chinese dissident. He, he, I mean, he's an American now, but he was a human rights activist who was imprisoned for several years in China. And he was making this point on the BBC where he was like, look, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't care about climate change. Like, yeah. how Hello, can you, how can you, you. think <laughs> that they're, how do you think that they even care at all? Like, they're not. And he was arguing against Jeffrey Sachs, who is this person who's totally... Um, he, he, you know, he's like a, a high, um, you know, like he's an elite American intellectual and he's totally bought off or, you know, bought into the, the, the Chinese narrative, Mm -hmm. the Chinese communist party narrative where he's like, well, you know, America, like we shouldn't criticize because Iraq and Afghanistan and like, we can't really criticize China's human rights. This is the argument he was making on the BBC. So it's just like. Yeah, but the the amount of elite capture is insane. But also just the the negligence, the strategic negligence over the last two decades of American policy, thinking that there's not a whole lot of harm in letting U.S. companies go to town in China. Look, we and were busy in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and well, I mean, no, and that's it's... that's true, right? If 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 we weren't busy there, right? Because remember, George W. Bush had started out talking tough on China in 2000 during the campaign in 2001 when he took yeah, office. Yeah, this whole strategic we're, we're competitors thing. Yeah. Right, and just like that completely flipped after 9-11. And now it's been, this year is 20 years since 9-11. And it's only the last, really, I would say two years or so that the U.S. has really undergone this fundamental shift and it's 18 years too late. But it wasn't just a failure in Washington. I mean, it was also a failure in Wall Street, but throughout American society, there was, it's just a legacy of failures from local governments to college campuses, uh, wanting to, you know, uh, make inroads into China, all the towns and cities in America that have like, you know, sister city relationships. I mean, you went to NYU and don't they have like a They have a Shanghai campus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was the money. Like, you know, that's what all the sister city relationships, you know, uh, 
local mayors in America and governors going on these like paid for junkets in China where they go. It's a business junket paid by the Chinese government or media you know, as well. Yeah. And then like Press. they go in and they basically talk about how all the business you could do. And, you know, it's just yeah. I mean, it's been systemic. Yeah. Ugh. So how are we going to get out of this mess? Well, I think one thing that uh, Cleo brought up that I wasn't expecting the podcast to go there, but I think it was interesting where she asked, like, how do you articulate what a Chinese hegemon looks like? Mm. Right. And I think that that's something that we need to talk about more. We don't necessarily talk about the ideological side a lot. We do sometimes, but just kind of trying to articulate what that looks like is, I think, important. Right. If 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 we're not clear on what our own beliefs and values are, and we're also not clear on what the Chinese Communist Party's beliefs and values are, then we're in a real pickle. Because you know who does, you know who is super clear on what their values are? The Chinese Communist Party. And they're very clear on like specific steps that they use to spread their ideology. And like all these, like every move is deliberate and calculated. So when they censor Daryl Morey from the NBA, uh, talking about Hong Kong, it gives everyone pause, and so that's 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 the fallout from a from a strategy that's been in place for a long time, which is silence the West through using this kind of uh, control of organiz- of Western organizations and companies inside China. I think there's also another piece of it, which is you know we don't really have time to get into it here, but like the trick they've pulled is to make it make the West think or make certain people think that this is not about ideology. You know what I mean? Like, let's not even have the the conversation where we talk about this in terms of an ideology, because that's so Cold War. Right. That's why we just have to cooperate on areas of interest, like climate change. Yeah. No, seriously, it is it is a brilliant strategy to basically get what they want. Right. Well, I sure hope that the you know U.S. strategic and intelligence community is listening to this podcast. Well, I think the issue is the the intelligence community has known all this. Actually, that's true. They're, that's they're the ones the who've been screaming community. it all along. Yeah. So I, I hope that you know all the the billionaire hedge funds and Fortune 500 companies on Wall Street have listened to this podcast, okay. and they're like, <laughs> uh-huh. you know what, you guys, you know, and Cleo, you're right. We need to change our wicked ways, stop investing in China, uh, and do what's right for the future of. Uh, ourselves and for our country and our beliefs. We're doomed. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for watching this episode of China Unscripted. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Talk to you next time. I feel like we should have ended on a more hopeful note than that. Tune in next time for the hopeful note. (laughs) Isn't the next one going to be about uh, the genocide in China for the last 20 years? Tune in next time. (laughs) 